And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies in association with Catholic Answers, which can be found online at catholic.com. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature to history to art, philosophy and science, as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Welcome to Deep Down Things. I'm Dave Devil, professor of Catholic Studies and the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Liz Kelly, award-winning author, speaker, uh, jazz, sometimes jazz singer, and most importantly, the managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Liz, welcome back. Thank you, Dave. Good to be here. All right. We have a great show for you today. We have as guest James Matthew Wilson. He's a professor at Villanova University, although he is uh, headed uh, to the University of St. Thomas in Houston. We'll ask him a little bit about that. He is himself an award-winning poet and critic and a great thinker in his own right, and we've been uh, very grateful to have a number of articles uh, from James for Logos. We'll be talking about one today called Emptying the Tankard, Recovering the Soul in the Age of South, and looking at the questions and uh, the directions that that article points us to. James, welcome. Dave, Liz, it's great to be with you. It is great to be with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work and, and tell us a little bit about your new position that you've announced recently? Well, uh, I've, I've had a kind of curious career. I began um, as an aspiring writer. I wanted to be a poet. And, uh, and kind of to my surprise, I've ended up being one. I've um, <laughs> <laughs> spent most of my time these days either writing poems or thinking about them. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I have, well, I have, there are a few things that make me an unusual character, I suppose, and not all of them good. But uh, one of the things <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that, makes, that makes me kind of an unusual good character is that um, as I fell in love with literature and, and with poetry in particular, there, there were two just intuitions or things that I took for granted that without having to argue. One was that um, that form mattered, that mm. that poetic form was was intrinsically important. And to me, it's it's what first drew me to the art. Mm. But but also there was that intuition that virtually every person has when reading uh, a truly great book. Mm. And that is that that art can change your life. Yeah that that the encounter with a work of art does something decisively to your being and so that led me really to set off on kind of a quest for that took many many years to just explain to my own self-satisfaction why is it that that happens and so i kind of ended up having a career as both a poet but then also as a philosopher as i've tried to um, understand the nature of art, what it means to to speak the word beauty, what the word beauty is, and how it relates both to art and to nature and to the order of being. And you know, little by little, that led me into the sort of caverns of of Thomism and Plato, 
And uh, so I've published at least one book on that subject, The Vision, The Soul, Truth, mm. Goodness, and Beauty in the Western Tradition. Um, and in fact, to just go on for one second longer, uh, you know, much of my my time as a as a college professor has been spent teaching philosophy and theology and thinking about the transcendental properties of being truth, goodness, and beauty. But all the while, I've remained fundamentally a guy who wants to write in meter and rhyme. And so uh, I had, was asked just this last winter to found a new Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing at the University, University of St. Thomas. And that's um, what you were just alluding to. And so beginning this fall, we're going to open our doors as the first Master of Fine Arts program that has as uh, as at the center of its mission the 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 remembrance of and the revival and continuation of the Catholic literary tradition. Mm. That's fantastic. God bless you. Let's tie this into the most recent article you did for us. I mean, you've talked about what attracted you about about literature and especially about poetry as form. Uh, you've talked about literature as opening the gates of perception uh, to something real. And that's, that's really uh, the burden of that last article that you did for us, is that uh, the language of the self is one that we have all around us. There's, I believe the magazine Self is still published. Um, <laughs> but we talk about ourselves all the time. But you're really saying that, uh, that what we need to do is recover the language of the soul and the concept of the soul, because that is the thing that gives form to the body, uh, gives form to uh, the self. Um, how, how is that connection of form in art and form in, in our understanding of what it means to be human connected? So when I started writing this article, I had this itch at the back of my mind that said, I know that this was inspired by something I read, but I couldn't remember what it was. And it was only after, in fact, I think you'd already published it when I realized, oh, yes, uh, it was an, a short essay by a good friend of mine and a poet whose work I teach in, in my own courses. His name is Frederick Turner. Mm -hmm. Turner had published a short essay that said, um, you know, in the, in the early modern period, the period of the Renaissance, the lyric was a great form of, of poetry to develop. You know, we associate the Renaissance with the sonnet form, the lyric form, which, which took a precedence that had, it never had before. He said the reason that the lyric was interesting is because it explored the self. But the reason it was interesting to explore the self is because selves back then had an actual content that were that was worth exploring mm. whereas in uh contemporary literature and postmodern literature all people people have as a self but the self has been as it were deconstructed away by post-structuralism uh and by that basic Foucauldian idea that yourself is really nothing other than a node that's been formed by a series of indifferent, subtle ideological forces or mm. powers. Yeah. And so there's no actual self worth expressing um, in the lyric. So in Turner's article, he just he advocates a return to uh, the epic, to the narrative forms of poetry, especially for younger poets. 
so that they learn to actually know something besides themselves before mm-hmm. they start exploring themselves so they have some definite content. So that I, I teach that essay in my verse writing course. I just think it's absolutely invaluable. But what struck me about it, what, uh, you know, I, as I started reflecting more about it was, um, was what, what does it mean to have form to the self? And of course, the ancient answer to that from Aristotle is that the soul is the form of the body. The soul is the form uh, that, that instantiates you in being, that makes you a particular kind of thing but then yeah. also makes you a definite thing in existence. And so I be, just began mulling the, um, the way in which uh, modern thought in, partic- in general, not just in the lyric poem, but modern thought in general is really self-possessed. We think about the health of the body, the health of ourself. We talk about self-care. Um, <laughs> and all of that language uh, repeats and repeats again an experience that I think Descartes sort of first begot in the modern age, which is um, this intimate sense of the self is the product of an experience actually of alienation of the self from the rest of reality. When, When Descartes writes in Meditations on First Philosophy, and he so famously proves as as every undergraduate knows uh cogito ergo sum i think therefore i am <laughs> and that therefore the self is undoubtable yeah he also proves that everything else can be doubted and he goes further in one of the meditations is it the second one when he picks up a piece of wax he he reaches two conclusions as he's holding the piece of wax of honeycomb excuse me in his hands he realizes that however confident he may be of the knowledge of the honeycomb that he sees with his eye, that he feels with his fingers, that he turns with his hand, however confident he may be of its reality, his self's reality will always be more immediately and intimately present to him, such Mm -hmm. that in fact it mediates the outside world. Now, for Descartes, the real interest here is not um, self-knowledge. Descartes just concerned with coming up with a scientific method by which we can measure objectively honeycombs and all the other stuff in the world so that we can master it and extend our lifespans. But for the history of philosophy, he sort of had an unintended consequence. And that is um, he created the problem of epistemology as, as modern people know it. We know ourselves, but how do we know anything else, especially if it seems to be the case that everything is mediated through the self? We come to focus on the self, but we come also um, to feel like we're really alone by ourselves. Well, the soul in the ancient world was the real answer to the question of the self. But with Descartes, we, we at least in part, and I'll go into this in a little bit, but we at least in part lose a conception of the soul in favor of the self. And that's sort of where the quagmire in which most modern persons find themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in a lot of writing courses, you know, or, or writing advice, people will say, write what you know. Um, yes. That sounds like that's, that's, you know, that's the problem that we've, we've gotten, that you're saying we've gotten from 
uh, you know, the philosopher Descartes is, well, if there's anything I know, it's myself. Whereas the difficulty is that we, most of us learn at some point, if there's anything that I really don't know, it's myself. Uh, so are you suggesting that maybe the answer is, maybe this will be part of your writing program, where our first rule is write what you don't know? <laughs> well, the thing is, you don't know yourself unless you know that it belongs to something that's not yourself. We're a part of things. And so in the ancient world, to hear that imperative that we find in Plato and elsewhere, to know thyself, yeah. uh, was really a summons not to say, oh, annotate your feelings in your journal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but rather, although that would soon have become that in, in the hands of Marcus Aurelius, I suppose. But um right. uh but yeah. do it on it, Instagram it, now, right? Yeah, right. Oh <laughs> Lord. Spare us. Discover the truth of your soul. And yeah. and as I started thinking about what that meant, I I, I kind of realized a few things. And this might this might be obvious to a lot of people, but I found it really kind of you know, world shattering or life changing to think about the self for the ancient world was to discover the soul, to think about the self and to attain happiness involved self mastery, but self mastery involved recognizing that your soul was a soul with a rational nature. And so self mastery, the key to happiness was a matter of coming to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And so we find in Plato two fundamental characteristics that are intrinsic to the soul. First, souls are immortal. And second of all, they're intellectual. Now, I'm going to take a quick divergence here. In the modern age, we love to think about the soul as the basis of our immortality. Because you know what that does? We can be as self-obsessed as we want. Mm -hmm. And somebody <laughs> yeah. says, well, why is yourself worth anything? You know, you have no personality. All you do is think about yourself. You've never learned anything. There's no content to you, but yet you're still self-obsessed and you think that you're worth something. Well, we say, right, myself is grounded in my soul and my soul is immortal. So there must be a permanent ground of value to myself in the soul. And we tend to stop there. So in the in the essay that you published, I talk about Yeats and, and Aldous Huxley. And a lot of you know early 20th century people were really interested in spirituality. And of course, in our day, we hear people talking about being spiritual and not religious. Right. Yeats was sort of the first spiritual but not religious person. Right. By which he meant, I believe I have an immortal soul, which justifies all of my self-obsession, but serves no other purpose. Mm -hmm. yeah. But you look back to Plato, and, and I'm thinking here particularly of Socrates and the Phaedrus, he's not particularly interested in what the soul tells him about himself. For the self to be marked with a soul and for the soul to be immortal, for him primarily means that the soul marks us as capable of knowing. And when we're capable of knowing, that means we're capable of participating in the forms of everything else. That is to say, we become participants in the cosmos, in the great motion of all things that, that forms the world order. And we come, become participant in the eternal ideas that infinitely transcend the cosmos. And so 
uh, I like to sum it up neatly thus. There's nothing personal about the soul for Plato. Mm-hmm. The soul is what marks you not as some freestanding entity that's interesting and valuable in itself, but rather as something as a reality capable of participating in an order infinitely greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not your own private affair. <laughs> so then is the is the goal then, I mean, you know, like I say, write what you don't know. Is the, is the goal really learn what you don't know, and that is the universe itself? I mean, you know, Newman will say in the idea of a university that what's the goal of this? To have mapped out the universe. Uh, is, is that, you know, to... To be the true true self isn't that isn't that really the goal? Is to recognize that intellectual part of ourselves has has a goal of seeing the universe and God in the center of it. I it it kind of it, it, sometimes it's amazing to me that we still have debates about things because there are some things on which pretty much every thinker worth paying attention to has reached a consensus, even ones who who disagree on right. other fundamental issues, and one of them including both the ancient world, the medieval scholastics, and even in a a problematic, attenuated way, the modern German philosophers, everybody has a conception of the intellectual life as being founded in our reality as intellectual souls Mm -hmm. capable of receiving an imprint of the macrocosm, the great order of things within the microcosm of the soul. And so to become fully human means to receive this imprint from outside of us of, of an order that's, that's, that's you know, infinitely vaster and greater than we shall ever be. But as we come to know it, we come to discover all things anew as they come to live in ourselves. You know, Aristotle says in De Anima, the mind is itself, all, in a sense, all things. What he's talking about there is the, where, the way things, as the scholastics put it, virtually come to to be within us as known and as we do that we ascend a pretty orderly ladder until we arrive at the cause of what made all things to be made that order to be in the first place and of course at the highest point of the ladder which ends up being the very center of the self the center of the soul is God. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Is it the Germans' fault, though? I mean, you know, you have somebody like Immanuel Kant at the end of the 18th century who tells us, well, we can't really get into the things themselves. We can only sort of see the surfaces, and all we can do is sort of, uh, you know, we can put things out there and put order on things. And then that leads, you know, maybe a couple hundred years later to Oprah and my truth and your truth. Is that, is, is that what happened to us? 
there there's a couple a couple um at least a couple things that went wrong um with Kant and the German intellectual and university model. Um first the university becomes the place of universal knowledge, but there's no one intellectual entity that knows all yeah. things. And so everybody becomes a specialist <laughs> within his particular branch of the university and nobody knows everything together. Yeah. Um, there's, there's just no place in that model where, where that can happen. And that's, it, there are a million reasons for that, including the loss um, of what comes to us from Plato and Aristotle, but also this is one of the few contributions I think of the ancient Stoics to uh, the intellectual life of the West. There's no concept of a hierarchy of knowledge left. There's just a, a universal knowing uh, or, you know, a, a principle of universal knowledge to which we're all sort of thought engineers in this or that particular specialization. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Um, the other one is related to what you say in responding to Descartes and, and to, to Hume about self-knowledge. Um, Kant does have a conception of us having uh, an interior knowledge of, of the divine and of of God and of 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 its connection to the moral law and also to to the beauty of nature, but it's an attenuated connection. Mm -hmm. It's 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 far far less direct than, uh, say we the way it finds expression in Thomas Aquinas, who says that we know God in two ways. We know Him from His effects, and by those effects we mount up to a knowledge of God as as being itself and Creator of all things, uh, and then also by not mm -hmm. knowing. By, by the silence of the soul where God speaks to us most presently. Um, both those things for Aquinas are, are avenues to God and they're complementary avenues to God. Whereas for a Kant, um, the world is much less interesting than that. It gives us intimations of the divine in our experience of beauty, but beauty is just kind of a, it's a judgment of taste that stands apart from the conceptual knowledge of physical phenomena that that reason uh that that what we normally call reason gives to us so it, it cuts the world into pieces and never reunifies everything tie all of this then to uh justice um I, it was yeah. really prominently featured the idea of justice i mean obviously if you don't have a proper understanding of soul versus self, it's going to completely alter and deform your understanding of justice. Talk about that a little. Well, so, so if we only have a self, and then as uh, with the post-structuralist philosophers, we conclude that that self is effectively uh, in almost all of its specified features, or maybe I should say in all of its specified features, uh, a product of forces external to us, if we are selves who are subject formed or products of subject formation, then that means that um, every specific feature of myself must somehow be a heteronomy, something imposed on me from without. If that's the case, then to be true to myself, to be authentic, I basically have to set off on the quest of liberating myself from the shackles of formation from everything mm -hmm. outside of me. And then once that's done, there's actually nothing left but bare self. Yeah. But the, that's a um, problem, I, though, right? Angela, 
<laughs> Angela Franks uh, had an article on Foucault and First Things a few months ago, where she points out that Foucault's real dream was to have an experience of death, yeah. and that you know that he that he experimented with all kinds uh, of of pleasuring himself with the experience of almost right. dying, choking right. himself, stuff like that. And I think that's right because what he's what he was really driving after was to liberate the self from everything, including the life of mm -hmm. the body or even life itself, biopolitics as a kind of imposition from, from society. Yeah. Well, that's what we talk about nowadays when we talk about doing justice to the self. It's somehow unjust that yourself should have any features to it. And every feature is a sign of some either some injustice Oppression done against or you. Oppression or yeah. suppression or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Or, or every feature of yourself is some injustice done to others. Check your privilege, right, my friends. Right. You know that that, but that's not justice. Right. <laughs> None. That's a, an abuse of right. the word. For justice to be possible, you have to have a soul. Why? Not just because it grounds you and makes you permanently valuable, although that's you know not insignificant. Obviously, uh, Yates found it the whole thing, because when you are marked with a soul, you are marked as a particular kind of thing that plays a particular role in the broader order of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. And it's only understanding what you are, what you are for in the total scheme of things. It's only on the basis of that, that you can be a, re a recipient of what Aristotle calls distributive mm -hmm. justice. That is to say something or someone that is owed mm -hmm. something in justice because of what you are and also who you are. That is to say what you are as a soul, as a rational soul and who you are, the characteristics that you've cultivated or drawn into yourself, made part of yourself through the, the activity of your soul. Now, so in, in our age, justice is actually impossible and, to, and the way the word is, th is bandied about is, is an abuse yes. of the word. Yeah. We need to recover the soul to understand what it is that we deserve and what it is we owe to others. And what does beauty have to do with that then? I mean, beauty is an important vehicle in uh, uh, exacting just what you said. That's completely true. First of all, so much of what I said about the soul derives directly from Plato's Phaedrus. Yes. Um, and in the Phaedrus, what Plato's or what Socrates is trying to explain, at least in the part that I'm talking about, uh, he's, his, his nominal subject is love, but what he's particularly talking about is the experience of beauty. We wander through the world more or less numb to things, concerned with practical things, but when we encounter beauty as a property of being, as a, as a, as a participant in reality as such, an element of reality as such, Suddenly, through the eyes of our body, the eyes of our soul open up, they awaken, and we realize that this thing here that I'm seeing is formed, that is to say, it has an integrity into itself, but it's also a participant in the forms, the great intellectual source of all reality, and therefore its own form is tied by a ribbon of light called splendor 
to the order of things as a whole. Every time we encounter beauty, we encounter, and this is literally the definition of beauty, splendor formi, the splendor of form. Every time we encounter beauty, we're seeing things as having their own reality and realizing that in this particular reality, a painting, a tree, uh, the petals of a tulip, we see something that has its own integrity, its own reality that gives itself to us, that rushes up to us. That's why it's called an object. It objects to your eyes. It throws itself against your eyes and makes itself known and says, look at me. And when we look at it, we see that it doesn't just exist by itself. It exists as one being within this great splendorous pageant of being that has been formed by God. Mm -hmm. And that's the splendor part of form. So we see things that they have their own integrity, their own existence, but that that existence doesn't stand apart from everything. It rather actually is revelatory of the interconnectedness of everything. Now, I just taught um, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, and I found it, one of the things I found most fascinating about it is that here's what roughly what Francis argues. The, the world seems as if it's operating on a determinate course headed towards its own destruction, both spiritual and physical or environmental, and even, uh, you know, um, in terms of its economic injustices. The, the litany of complaints is myriad there. At every point, he says, we risk concluding that human beings as mere cells are so embedded in the determined, unrelenting relenting course of these things that human beings themselves will be powerless to, to stop them. But in fact, he says, human beings have souls. And we know we have souls insofar as when we stop and contemplate beauty, we realize immediately that we transcend the physical conditions that shape us and so often seem to dominate our lives. And so it's only in the soul's capacity to perceive beauty that the soul steps out of history and enters at that very moment into eternity. And that capacity to know the eternal, to contemplate the beautiful, that is the sole basis for human freedom and therefore the sole basis for hope in the future of human beings. Well, let's, let's ask a question because you, you have a section in your article, and I think this is a big question for a lot of people. Uh, there, you know, John Paul II is in a sort of a train of thinkers, including Jacques Maritain and the great Roger Scruton, uh, who've talked about persons. Uh, mm -hmm. And they've tried to focus their attention on persons rather than rather than, you know, not that they disregard the soul, but they think the language of personhood uh, is helpful to us. Is it is it any better than the self? Uh, if if not, why not? Well, so I do think that the idea of personalism is superior to merely talking about mm -hmm. the self, um, but it has to be done in a context that is not forgetful of the soul. Um, the reason for the emergence of the language of personhood was um, uh, with the early 20th century personalist movements and those that have been revived since, including the personalism of John Paul II, is because personalism marks a particular kind of being, uh, a being that's 
that is characterized by, and this goes, this is literally Boethius's late classical definition of what a person is. It's a substance. So it exists in mm-hmm. itself, but it's a substance that is intellectual. So it has, so though it exists in itself, it's capable of going out of itself to participate in the being of other things. And in fact, persons do this in two particular distinctive ways. We go out of ourselves by knowing others, but we also go and, and being known, but we also go out of ourselves and are entered into by others by way of love. And so, yes, there is a, a powerful argument to be made that personhood is such a sort of infinite depth um, that everybody can potentially recognize and respect that it can be a fruitful avenue for um, for both philosophy and for for ethics. What I think goes astray there, or at least is at risk of going astray, is that personhood can pretty quickly collapse into a kind of selfhood. Mm-hmm. And we need to understand that there's a structure yeah. that for grounds personhood, the soul, and that that structure, the soul, does is not merely freestanding. Yes. The moment we recognize that we have souls, we also are recognizing that we are part of a broader order of things. Now, the personalists often, you know, rightly talk about this. They talk about the relationality of the creature, that, that, that the model of personhood is in the Trinity. And so God himself, one though he is, is also the perfect society, a community of love. All of that's really important and true. But I think actually the way in which we see this most clearly, the way we understand it most clearly, is actually in the language of the mm. soul. Whereby being what you are, that is to say, in virtue of your soul, you are inserted into a cosmic order that, to be crude about it, is not all about you. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to be a soul man, you've got to see the universe. You've got to see the cosmic order. That's that's exactly right. I, I like the soul man. I, I'm, I'm going to repeat this line because I, I'm just very yeah. attached to it is that just there's nothing very personal about the soul. There's nothing personal. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a good place to end. Um, where can we look to think more about this question of, of the soul and order? Uh, you know, you've got you, you mentioned your book, The Vision of the Soul. We'll put that up in the show notes. Um, where are other places where we can think about that? And, and I one further question. You have a new book of poetry out. Can you mention that as well? I'd love to. Thank you. Yes. So, so I, I would send readers to the vision of the soul um, because in the third chapter of the book, I explore the theme um, uh, uh, in terms of beauty, uh, which then in the article for you, I took up uh, in terms of soul and self. But uh, there are several great sources for thinking about this, that um, about this problem. Um, Three of them that are, that are now classics of our day are, are mm-hmm. Philip Reef's Triumph of the Therapeutic, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, and then if, and then I guess I'm going to have to name two, um, Charles Taylor's book, Sources of the Self, which was yeah. fundamental to the research I did for my essay, and, um, and his more recent The Secular Age. But what I've been most impressed with lately is a book by Carl Truman, a theologian yes. and historian at Grove City College. He's just published a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. 
I can't remember, Dave, if you read that. or if you, I, I have you, not read it yet, but I, that's okay. on my list, and I'm glad you brought it to our attention. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a synthesis. It's intended to be a popular synthesis of the, of the, the works that I was just mentioning, mm-hmm. uh, and it does do that. And, and it also, um, uh, neither Taylor nor McIntyre nor Reef, for, for a number of reasons, we're in a position to sort of explore uh, the strange morphology of our warped public culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Truman really takes that as his starting off point. And so um, he's ex- he, he takes the, the, um, the arrival of identity politics as the reason that we need to explore these, these great thinkers who, who sort of explain the modern self and self politics or identity politics to us. So uh, it's, it's, it's not the easiest read for something that sells itself as a sort of popular primer of the rather difficult writings of Philip Reef and others. But, um, but I think it's really going to be a valuable book um, because it, 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 it crystallizes um, the, a broader consensus about the state of, of postmodernity that, um, that really everybody needs to understand because it's, it's coming for you. Um, and then finally, uh, my most recent book, uh, my third full-length collection of poems, is a book called *The Strangeness of the Good*, which um, consists of two sections of of lyric poems and then a long poem. If nobody, if everybody's not ready to forget it yet, a long poem called *Quarantine Notebook*. <laughs> that yes. that in you know very, I hope what will sound like a rather Wordsworthian uh, blank verse takes us through. Um, the public and the private events of the first two months of the the coronavirus debacle and tries to understand um, what it is we become and what it is we're doing to ourselves. Fantastic. Well, that is a wonderful place to end. James, this has been a delight to think about uh, our place in the created order and what it means to be and sold bodies. Thank you again for being with us. Uh, Liz, Best wishes for the new program. Yes, best wishes on your new program at St. Thomas in Houston. Thank you. This has been another great episode of Deep Down Things. Promote our podcast, tell people about it, and point them to patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's all one word. Patreon.com backslash deep down things. Thank you and God bless. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app.